in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from that time, our scriptures have told us this story of God exercising sovereignty and authority over his creation. That word over is important to us tonight. God from the first has been given to us as this God who is in control over his creation. Psalm 24 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The sea and all that dwell in it. God is the one who is in charge of the fish. God is the one who has created all things. Psalm 50 says a little bit later that he knows every bird in every mountain. Who is this God? The God who is over creation. But if God is over creation, the scripture also gives it to us and says it explicitly that creation is underneath God's dominion. That God is sovereign over and creation has taken her place underneath the great creator God. In the first words of our scripture that I just quoted in the beginning, it says this, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void, and darkness hovered over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, it tells us in Genesis 1-2. That the Spirit of God was brooding over the waters. Before, before anything was created, formlessness and void and darkness, the Spirit was giving birth over the waters. Creation has always been underneath God's authority. The image here in Genesis 1 and all throughout Scripture, Jesus even said it here in Luke chapter 13, the image here is of a mother hen brooding over her nest, nurturing and bringing life, working to prepare this life that is coming. I want you to hold that image in your mind tonight. God hovered over the earth, spirit gathered creation under his wings. And it was working. Creation was beautifully submitted to God's authority. And therefore, there was animation. The the, the creation was lively and vivacious. It was working. There was a divine energy that was coursing throughout the cosmos. There was potentialities. There was horizons out beyond. There was expectation. There was a hopeful. Creation was where it needed to be. It was coherent. It was orderly and put together. And Adam and Eve were in full cooperation with this. They were under God's authority as his good stewards, as the superintendents over his good creation. And it was beautiful, the unity and the oneness. And God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam, it's a beautiful picture how much it was working. But then, that ill-fated Genesis 3 comes along. The first two chapters were great, and then we stumble, we turn the page to Genesis 3, and we see creation starting to rebel. We see creation, the little bitty chicks, walking away from the mother hen, saying, I've got this. I know what's right for me. Don't judge me. Don't tell me how to live. And Satan seduced Adam and Eve into thinking that they could function as God and do it just as well. 
humanity started taking authority into its own hands. And the result was that they were driven out of the garden. There was a brokenness. There was a fall from grace. There was a fall from communion with Father, Son, Spirit. The chicks got scattered and separated from Mother Hen. We believe that God has been over creation from the beginning. We believe that creation has been submitted to God's dominion before the fall. We also clearly see in Scripture that the devil has been working hard to bring creation under his wing since the beginning. We see this right in the beginning with one-third of the angels siphoned off from submission to God. We see Adam and Eve being seduced by the enemy and pulled away from this communion. All throughout our scripture, even Samson, this picture of Samson and Delilah, the great, strong Samson who could, who could do it all, was pulled away and was broken. I think that's to be seen as a metaphor for all humanity. There was great potential, and yet we walked away. Judas himself was enticed by the rulers and the powers and the authorities to break covenant with Jesus. Even Peter, the one, Peter, Cephas, the rock, the one whom Jesus would turn loose on his church to lead the church forward. Peter is the one who on that very night that Jesus hung on the tree denied that he knew him three times. I don't know the man. What are you speaking about? Get away from me. Leave me alone. I don't know who you're talking about. This is the leader of the church. And it's not any better for us. The myth of progress has told us that humanity was on this great crescendo, that humanity was building to this glorious utopia, that it was going to work. Look, we're just making these great medical advances We've got our technology in place, and and get ready, people, because we are headed somewhere, and it's going to be glorious. This is what the myth of progress has sold us. And yet in the 20th century, from 1900 to 1999, more people were killed by oppression, by war, by mass killings than in the previous year. So much so, it's gotten so bad that we've had to create a new field of study. I just learned this this week. There's something called atrocitology. And there are atrocitologists who study just how bad humanity has become. They study the atrocities that humanity perpetrates against weaker people. We've had to create this new field of science to study how evil we have become. In fact, atrocitologists say... That in in the 20th century, in those 99 years, on the low end, there was 150 million people killed by war. And on the high end, 250 million. So much for that myth of progress, that we were just going to get better because of technology, because of medical science advances. And I'm grateful for our technology and our medical science, but it is not making us a better people. What is going on, we ask the question. Genesis 3, we see the creation was scattered. The creation broke off. The creation ran away from the good creator. The enemy has steadily been marshalling his resources to gather underneath his dominion all who will come 
And Jesus shows up one day, we just read it, Luke chapter 13. And he was on his way to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9. That's the hinge of the book. And it shows Jesus coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration. He had Peter, James, and John with him. And they go up to pray, it says. And while they were praying, Moses and Elijah show up in the cloud of glory. And they speak to Jesus about his death. That was the conversation that day in the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter goes, oh my gosh, this is great. So wonderful that we're here, Jesus. Let's build three tabernacles and we'll create Jesus land and we'll sell tickets and people will come because the market will sustain it. And let, trust, let me just run with this, Jesus. Will you turn me loose? Because I've got a great idea here. And Jesus says, we have got to get down this mountain into the valley of the shadow of death. We are going to Jerusalem. I am going to die. In Luke chapter 13, this is just a little bit after that, Jesus has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, and he says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you, Jesus. Jesus said to them, you go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. I want you to understand what Jerusalem was to the Jews. How important and central Jerusalem was to a Jew. What would they have thought about Jerusalem? Jerusalem to the Jews was the center of the universe. Jerusalem was not a small location within the world. The world was a small location within Jerusalem to these Jews. The temple was not peripheral to the world. The world was on the outside. The temple was the hub. God shines forth out of Jerusalem, says Psalm 50. God's temple is seen as in God's heart before all things. It was primordial. It was preexistent. Before God said, let there be, he had something going in his heart about Jerusalem and its temple. This is what the Jews would have thought. And Jesus shows up that day and calls them out. What was he saying when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the people that kills her prophets and stones those that God has sent to her. What was he saying? What he was saying that day is that the seismological core of the earth is corrupt. Down to its core, the earth is broken and sinful and dark. That the world from the inside moving outward is filthy. Even Jerusalem has participated in the madness, Jesus is saying. Kills prophets and stones them, the ones who've been given this document by God, the Ten Commandments, and very explicitly do not kill, with, and, and yet the ones that God sends as his prophets are stoned by the people who have in their founding document, thou shalt not kill. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, what is wrong with you? The earth is broken by sin and death. So what does Jesus do? He sets his face toward Jerusalem as he walks. 
The Pharisees, his, his enemies, right? The, the ones that Jesus called out the most. He turns over their tables. Jesus has got this tension going on with the Pharisees. And even the Pharisees were so concerned that they come out to him. And just, I think, out of the genuineness of their own heart, they're trying to save the guy from being killed. They're saying, hey, there's this guy. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's called Herod the Tetrarch, which means he's one of the four most important rulers in all of Rome, Herod. He's like set up shop in our place. Remember in Jerusalem, he's here. You need to go away because he is going to kill you. There is a warrant out for your arrest, Jesus. Do not do this. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus came down and let Peter, James, and John and his people know that we are going to Jerusalem, Peter pulls him aside. Look, Jesus, let's talk. Look, I know you're well-meaning. I know you have a real tender heart, and that's great, and that's fine, and all well and good. But that's not going to work, Jesus. Because we've got a ministry to run. We've got... We've got do you know where this thing could go if you just keep on this course? We could have the money pouring in. We could be popular. We could overthrow the Romans. Jesus, don't you dare say we're going to Jerusalem because you will die if you go there. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. You don't know what's going on. You have in mind the things of man. You want to build a business, but you do not have in mind the things of God. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve give his life as a ransom. You go tell them, Father. On the third day, I will send you my word. You go tell that fox, I'm bringing the fight to his doorstep. I am coming to address evil and to bear fruit. Don't be surprised. Run to me. I will not ignore death. I will not escape to some heavenly throne. That is not the plan here. John, the great theologian, said the word became flesh. And he moved in among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten. He was full of grace, and he was full of truth, and he was not scared of anything. Since Genesis 3, God has been on a mission to set his people free from the slavery and the tyranny of sin. Moses was hiding. Moses was a scoundrel. Moses was scared. Moses was like me. 
hiding out in the desert because he was afraid and because he'd done stupid things. He'd killed a man and he had to go hide. And he's out there for 40 years. And God shows up to him in that beautiful and scary scene, the burning bush that wasn't being consumed. It was on fire, but it wasn't being burned up. And God says, Moses, you go over to Egypt and you tell Pharaoh right now, Israel is my son, my firstborn son, my chosen. You let my people go. You get over there and you tell Pharaoh what God's MO is. God's MO is to set his people free from slavery. Tonight I want to suggest to you that Jesus is God's way of bringing creation back under his Jesus on the cross is God's way of restoring creation to fellowship with him. Jesus on the cross is God's way of destroying the rulers and the powers and the authorities who have held his people in slavery. Jesus on the cross is God's way of dealing a final death blow to death itself. Jesus on the cross is God's way of making a public show of the enemy. Paul said Jesus on the cross is God's way of bringing all things back under his perfect lordship. Jesus knows that we rebelled. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own wicked ways. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus knows that we're the ones that walked away. So what does he do about it? Jesus climbs back over creation by climbing up on the cross. Jesus extends his authority back over creation by extending his arms that night on the cross to bring us back underneath his wings. Good Friday is the night that we solemnly remember, solemnly remember that the, at the cost of his life, Jesus Christ has gathered all the world, and all of humanity back under his wings. Pontius Pilate is the one that had Jesus scourged, whipped 39 times, brutally. Just a couple sentences before in the story, he says, I'm going to let him go. I found nothing wrong with him. You just told me all this stuff, why I should kill him. He's fine. He hasn't done anything wrong. And they say, crucify him. He said, he hasn't done anything wrong. I'm letting him go. Crucify him, he says, okay, I'll have him whipped and let's kill him. Just because, because the people demanded it. After he had him whipped that night, Pontius Pilate drags him out in humiliation in front of the people. And he says, Ecce homo, behold the man. Ecce homo, behold the man the man who you have given to me to kill. Tonight I say to you, Ecce homo, behold the man who is God. Behold the word who was made flesh, who came, he should not have done this. There was nothing, nothing that we've done to deserve. But I want you to behold this Jesus Christ who has come. Who took in people who were filthy and nasty. He loved the prostitutes and the broken. He loved the stupid tax collectors who were 
stealing from people. He loved the outsiders. He loved the marginalized. Tonight we say, Ecce homo, behold the man. Who is this man, Jesus Christ? That he would come among us and stretch his arms out over us and ultimately deliver us from sin, from death, from the grave. Tonight I pray that we would accept the invitation to come up under his wings. I pray tonight that we would allow ourselves to be gathered under a Savior like this, who does stuff like this. Tonight I pray that we would be empowered to resist the deceits of Satan that would try to drag us away and seduce us from walking away from the mother hen. Tonight I pray that we would behold this man, Jesus Christ, and respond to God's wooing through repentance, that we would come tonight and repent after beholding this man. Anyone that would climb up on a tree to bring healing to the world and to bring salvation to filthy people like us deserves to be in charge of the whole world. Come tonight and be gathered under the Savior's outstretched arms. Tonight I bid you, tonight I beg of you, come, be gathered under this Savior's We're going to take a couple minutes here, silent reflection and confession. We're going to repent tonight as a people. Before we come to the table of the Lord, we're going to do what Paul instructed us to do. To not come to this table casually, to not come to this table haphazardly, to not come and use this Jesus, but to come and humbly receive him. Tonight, let us go into a time of silent confession.